Today, we're going to talk about an emphasis on biblical soteriology. Getting God's salvation plan right. Jesus as more than a Savior. If you're one who doesn't normally take notes, this might be a Sunday that you might want to change that because there's going to be a lot of information coming at you and you're likely going to need it later. So I'll give you some things right up front. The sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. Stephanie was reading through a book that's been helpful to her lately, and just yesterday she let me know of how that was included in this very popular book. It's in most popular Christian books, but it's not in the Bible. Every now and then, somebody that we esteem as a scholar, like Francis Chan, will come out and say, did you know the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible? Guess what? People who read their Bibles probably already know. But it, it becomes a very big problem for those of us who want to lead others to Christ when we have to deal with those who've been taken down this path to believe that the sinner's prayer is in the Bible, but it's not. Neither is praying and asking Jesus into your heart to be saved, yet it's in most popular Christian literature. If you turn on the TV and flip it to something better other than what's typically on there, like something other than cable news, something other than whatever is popular or trending right now, if you flip it to a Christian-based channel, you're likely going to hear the sinner's prayer, or you're going to have the people who are begging for your money, asking people to pray and ask Jesus into their heart, and those two things are not in the Bible. And it's quite problematic when you're actually trying to lead someone to the Lord and they've been told these things that are not biblical. In modern times, we have watered down salvation and nearly wiped out the concept of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's something you don't hear about very often, even if you're to get excited about the newest Christian movie which I like all the new Christian movies. You will not, you're not going to hear about the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have cheapened Christianity and misguided masses through the wide and destructive gate. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Now I want to remind you of something that I have talked about three times already here in this congregation but I want to show you again. So the idea of build your house on the rock. It's a great concept. It's biblical. But this is how we interpret it. The rock is equals Jesus. And so that means build your house on Jesus. That's the teaching we think that that's about. But that would actually be wrong. Now, there's supposed to be sound. We missed that. Let me read to you what Jesus said in the same context in which he talked about that wide gate that leads to destruction and the narrow gate that leads to life and only few enter through it. In that same chapter, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, let's listen to his words. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it has had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So notice it does not say what we thought it said. The concept is there. Build your house on the rock. You'll see that on the slide behind me. But the rock is doing what Jesus said. The wise man is the one who, built, who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. So, we understand it to mean build your house on doing what Jesus said. Now, we've been over this before, 
But I want to go ahead and give you some more words of Jesus, just very quickly, and it's out of the Gospel of John. We'll be studying together soon. John chapter 15, verse 14. Jesus said, you are my friends, if you do what I command. Do you want to be Jesus' friend? Then do what he says. And when we go through John, as we peel it back from the very beginning, we're going to learn that from the beginning was the Word, and that Word was Jesus. And so you understand the whole concept of Jesus was part of God's plan all along, and that all of God's inspirational Word is wrapped up in the concept of Jesus. So if you're going to do what He says, then do what this book says. Not just the red letters. But here's what happens. Uh, over time, some false doctrines have creeped into the church, and you'll see this slide, you'll see it creeping. I'm not going to take the time to go over this. Uh, someday, maybe we'll have a class on it. Does anybody know what this is? I'm sure some of you do. <laughs> this is Calvinism in a nutshell. Now, you do know that people like Martin Luther and Augustine and John Calvin, they started with good motives. The idea is that the church had gotten to a point where it was teaching people that the way you get to heaven is you, you do good works and you go to heaven, and that's how you get saved. And the idea of Jesus dying on the cross and rising again uh, so that we could be saved because we could never be good enough was lost in all of that. And so people like Augustine and John Calvin and Martin Luther rose to the occasion and said, enough is enough. We must depend on the grace of God. However, each one of them swung that pendulum too far and said things like, there is nothing you can do for your own salvation. And that's what TULIP is kind of about. Those are the five basic doctrines of Calvinism, uh, just to give you an idea, this will help you so that you, you just under, get your head wrapped around it. John Calvin actually opposed an individual later in his life, so much so, he had the man tried for heresy and put to death. He went flipped completely the other way. This man disagreed with John Calvin, so he must be put to death. This kind of stuff that John Calvin, or that Calvinism and other false doctrines, this kind of stuff creeps into the church and it leads to lots of problems. And I'm not going to address all of these things today, but I'm going to address some things that we need to talk about when it comes to soteriology. Things that are very practical, real, we have to deal with on a regular basis. So the main things to clarify today are these four things. They're going to pop up all at once, but we're going to go over them in segments. First of all, we're going to talk about predestination. What I'd like to give you is the two, I'd like to give you the two passages in the New Testament that mention predestination, because these are the ones that are used. We've already discovered one in Ephesians, and then we'll look at another one. So the first one in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, when you read this, it, I don't know what you think, but a person who holds to the doctrine of predestination, understand, just because there is a doctrine of predestination doesn't mean it aligns with a word in the New Testament. The doctrine of predestination is this. God picks and chooses ahead of time, before you're born, he picks and chooses who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. And everything that we read about God from the beginning to the, to the end of the New Testament, the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament, everything we know about our Father flies in the face of an unfair God. He's not an unfair God. And an unfair God would say, this one is created to go to hell. That's not fair. 
But predestination, the doctrine of predestination is that he picks who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell, and you don't get a say in it. And if you ever get an opportunity to visit a church that's really caught up in Calvinism, and I'm not going to name the denominations, but they will expose themselves rather quickly. They're some of the most, they come across as gracious people, but they are some of the most judgmental people that you will ever meet. Because they believe they are the ones that are predestined to heaven. And anyone else who doesn't agree with them, well, you can't help it, but you're going to hell. There's nothing you can do about it. Why are we even talking? Why even listen to a sermon? Why should you even attend church? Because you're going to hell anyway. God chose you to go to hell, and you can't change it. Now, they're not going to come right out and tell you those things, but that's what they think. So, when you see a passage like this where it says the word predestined, I want you to understand the nature of God that you already know. God designed everything about each individual in us. He designed us, our whole makeup, to be His. He's designed us to be drawn to Him so that we would fall all over ourselves through life and at some point in time we realize we need a Savior. And He delivered Christ so that we would have that Savior, so that we would have a way to meet Him in heaven. So, yes, we are all destined to be His. But He gives us a thing called free will. And that is something that people who had hang on to doctrines such as Calvinism believe we, we don't get. You don't get free will. God picks and chooses who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. You don't get to say where you're going. Here, let me give you a Romans passage as well, because this is the other one for predestination. Romans eight twenty nine. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Romans is the most complex of all of the books in the Bible. In my first undergraduate seminary, only graduating seniors were allowed to study the book of Romans. You, you, you've got to have some foundation before you jump into this. It's a complicated book. But when you read your New Testament, and if you read with the idea, this, this idea of being predestined simply means that God wants us all to spend eternity in heaven with him. And he's designed a system, including our own makeup, to be drawn to him. He even mentions in Romans that men are without excuse because you can just look outside and watch the ants and you can look at the plants and look at nature and you can see God. He's designed it to draw us to Him. So the doctrine of predestination does not align with the word predestined in the New Testament, nor does it align with the nature of God. God is a fair God. If I had more time, I would spend it with you peeling back all these different things. I talk about how when Jesus prayed in that intimate prayer with his father and he spoke of he, he had not lost one except he'd only lost one. He's talking about Judas. There's somebody that was predestined to be saved and Jesus lost him. But that was Judas' call, not Jesus. If I had more time, we would, we would do like a college level exposition of all of the passages that completely fly in the face of the doctrine of predestination, but certainly agree with the, these two passages that God has set us up for success. But I want to move on to the next subject and these main things to clarify today. Once saved, always saved. Have you heard this? This is also in many churches. It's in a lot of books a lot of people that we presume are scholars, we, we think this is a legitimate biblical teaching. But I'm going to take you to a book, and, and I'll, I'll show you another passage as well, but I'm going to look at two passages in one particular book. So you know this book is a Bible, and really 
it's a compilation of many books inspired by God, all put into one. And one of the books within it, in the New Testament, we don't even know who wrote it. We know that it was inspired by God. It mentions early on that it was, this gospel was first attested to us by those who heard him. So whoever wrote it never heard directly from Jesus. So that means Paul didn't write it, even though a lot of people think he did. He couldn't have, because he heard Jesus when he was struck down on the road to Damascus by Jesus himself. He spoke to him. Okay. So this idea of once saved, always saved, we're going to look at two passages in this book. We don't know who wrote it. So it went through a lot of scrutiny to be accepted as a book that belongs in the Bible. It's the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, that particular book, if you understand, if you just read it, you'll understand, it's written to Christians, to Hebrew Christians. If you read it, you'll see. It's, he's, there, this is not a book written to the satanic people. This is written to the Christians. Now, let's go ahead and look at one particular passage in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 and following. It is impossible... For those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace." Now, back up and look at what we just read. Those who have once been enlightened. When you think about enlightenment, you're thinking about a light bulb goes off in your head. Uh Uh-huh, I figured it out. Christians, for those who've figured out life, okay, we need Jesus. Who have tasted in the heavenly gift. Now, that's an interesting word, uh, phrase there, tasted the heavenly gift. In Hebrews chapter 2, it talks about Jesus who tasted death. What does that mean? It means he died. He did. He rose again. So, tasted the heavenly gift. That means these people are now owners. They they have the heavenly gift that's ahead of them. Who shared in the Holy Spirit, speaking of the indwelling Holy Spirit that Christians are given when they are converted to Christianity and are baptized. Who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They believe this to be true and they know it's good. And the powers of the coming age, they know what's coming down. They've heard. But they've fallen away. So here's what happens. is People listen to this and they say, well, that, that, that really can't happen. That, that can't happen at all. There's no way. I was in the first church where I was given the responsibility to, to do weekly preaching. I was actually filling in. And as I was preparing, I think I was helping get kids ready or something, there was a preacher on TV from Kansas City. His name is Jeff Adams. It's kind of amusing. Um, But he was preaching through Hebrews, and he landed here in Hebrews chapter 6. And so as I was multitasking, I really wanted to hear what he was going to say when he got to this part about falling away. And he got to it, and he read it. So I paused to pay attention, probably neglecting putting a soccer shoe on one of the children, but whatever, I was paying attention and he said, falling away, and he said, that doesn't happen or that can't happen. And then he went on and just ignored everything. Like, what in the world? He didn't even cover it. It it didn't fit his doctrine, so he just said it doesn't happen. My Bible and your Bible says it does. And that's what happens, is people say, well, if they fell away, they were never really saved in the first place. And you have to ask the question about the scripture that says, what about Hymenaeus and Alexander, Alexander, that Paul says, shipwrecked their faith. How do you shipwreck if you've never been on the ship? How do you shipwreck a ship that doesn't exist? This idea of these Christians who've fallen away, it really bothers those who don't believe you can fall away. They, have, they say, well, you couldn't have been saved in the first place. So once again, we're back to some of the most judgmental people you will ever meet. Because as soon as somebody commits some sort of a heinous sin, something that's horrible, some sort of a scandalous thing, 
Well, they were never saved in the first place, and they give up on your soul. You're destined for hell. God must have selected you for that. It's horrible. This particular passage gives us an idea that there is some sort of finality with God's grace with you, even after you're saved, that at some point in time, he's done. And that, that is true. You can, you can see the tone in this. For those of you who might have family members or even somebody here who reads this and thinks, oh my goodness, what if, how could God ever forgive me for the stuff I've done? That's most of us, by the way. What if I'm falling away? What if, what if, I, can't, what if I can't be brought back to repentance? Well, here's, that's the thing. That's the catch. When you read this, this is one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible to me for those kinds of people who feel like they're utterly lost. You see, if you wonder if that could be you, could, could that be me? Could I, could I be one that's fallen away and can't be brought back to repentance? No, that's not possible. You see, it's not possible for you to be one if you can actually think about the destiny of your own soul. If you're capable of contemplating where your soul might end up for eternity, then you are not in a category of people who can't change their minds. You're still capable. And that means, in the scripture that we just read, it's particularly in verse 6, it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. If you're capable of thinking about the destiny of your soul, then you're capable of changing your mind, which means you can repent. Which means you're not falling away. That's comforting. <laughs> if you can actually think about it, you're not fallen away. That's comforting to me. So who would know then who's reached that point where God has cut somebody off? I would think that would be left up to the judge, don't you? Not us. It's not my job to judge whether you have been cut off. I have seen some of the darkest souls come to know Jesus. If all goes as planned Tomorrow, in the second time in the history of the particular facility where I get to serve as chaplain, we'll get to baptize someone into Christ in solitary confinement. That's special. So Hebrews 6 is the passage that I first wanted to show you. Now I want to show you another one in Hebrews. This is probably an easier one for you to discuss these kinds of things with friends and family, and that's Hebrews chapter 10. A familiar passage, we'll read it right now. Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 25, we'll go to verse 27. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning, after we received the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There's only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. Wow. So when he says, and let us not give up meeting together, is he talking to the Satanists or is he talking to the Christian Hebrews? He's talking to the Christian Hebrews. We should meet together. And I'm preaching to the choir. We're doing that right now. We're meeting together. How do Christians meet together? Bible study, fellowship in their kitchen, <laughs> church. There are people that say, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, you might want to share with them this passage because it says, if you deliberately keep on sinning, what, what would that sin include? It would be any continual sin, but it certainly would include the context here, not meeting together or not encouraging each other. If you keep doing that, no sacrifice remains but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Christians, we could become enemies of God and burn in hell if we continue to not encourage one another and not meet together. Wow. Don't tell me you don't have to go to church to be a Christian because my Bible kind of comes down heavy with a hammer. You better do it. And we better encourage one another. All right, I want to give you, I said I'd give you another passage. And this comes from a study we just did it not too long ago. A couple of studies back, we went through Peter's letters. So I want to take you back to 2 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 20. And we'll read it. You'll see it up behind me. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge 
of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. That's a pretty heavy passage right here. You're better off if you never knew the way of righteousness than to know it. You know how the Bible talks about Adam and Eve knew each other and then conceived and bore children? That's an intimate knowledge. That's an embracing. That's being very close to it. That's knowing it. To know the way of salvation. You've embraced it. You're now saved. To be saved, it's better for you to not be saved in the first place than to be saved and then turn your back on Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Aren't those both lost and lost? Yes, lost and lost. But one's worse off than the other. We can... If, let me give you a heads up. The men in their gym notebooks, they have uh, quite a substantial list of the levels of sin. In a study I did many years ago, uh, we asked the question, we're discussing things in a group larger than this. We're having a Bible study, I was leading it, and I said that uh, I'm not so sure there aren't levels of sin and punishment and reward. And an elder in the church stood up and he slapped the back of his hand. I don't, I don't, I've not seen this gesture before, but it was very firm. He was a guy that had stood up and helped that church stay independent instead of becoming a denomination when the Disciples of Christ was trying to swallow up all the churches. So he was a very solid man, and he stood up in a, and in this Bible study, slapped the back of his hand and said, you cannot teach that. That is not taught in Restoration churches. And I said, um... I didn't know what to do. I was young. (laughs) Uh, How about we study together this week and come back together and see what the Bible says? So what happened is I ended up producing that whole thing that's in the men's notebook. And if you add it up, I think it's somewhere around 400 examples of the Old and New Testament of levels of sin and punishment and reward. And so I, after we talked... We, the whole group talked, shared some of their things, and I handed out that paper and said, here's what I discovered. And the elder stood up again, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, he's going to start slapping the back of his hand again, and I'm going to be in trouble in front of everybody. So he stood up, and he said, he looked around, he said, I've listened to what he's had to say, and I studied this week. He's right. Then he turned around and pointed at me, but you better let everybody know this, because I've never heard this. So... I still print those and still give them out, and they are in that men's notebook. If you uh, are connected to a man here, ask him to make you copies or let you see it or whatever. They'll help you out. Um, I, I don't know if you like it or not, but I like to put tools in people's hands. I like to help them when they have, the, have these subjects. But Jesus uh, made it clear um, that we're supposed to do what he says. And the Bible makes it clear that that includes all of what the Bible teaches. And we're told in 2 Peter quite clearly, you're worse off if you never knew him than if you knew him and turned your back on him. Okay, if I had more time, we'd do a whole college-level lecture on this whole thing. But we need to move on and cover the other subjects. So more the main things to clarify today, faith, grace, And our responsibilities, you'll see this up behind me. That's one of the things we're going to cover now. And then also, second thing, baptism. I'm going to lump them together. If I had more time, I would just do baptism. If God permits and time uh, allows it in the future, after this series, we'll have a special message on baptism a year and a half or so down the line. Once again, I think we should do those periodically anyway. But I want to lump them together. All right, so here's a familiar thing. You've seen this before, this slide up behind me, this triangle. 
I'm going to talk about this and we're going to flesh it out a little bit. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it because we've only got so much time on a Sunday morning. But I want to give you, I want to, I want to provide you with what you need to be the Christian God wants you to be and understanding the subjects at hand. So what you can see is in that chart, um, all of the things we've talked about in the past and we fleshed them out and we're going to do that here again in just a minute. But I want to talk to you about something that just recently happened and we had an elders meeting on Friday and I, um, I have this thing. So in 19, let me back up, around 1993, 95, somewhere back then, I was put in a situation where I was at Tangle Wild Christian Camp down in Texas. It was probably around 91 or 92 when I was actually, when things unfolded. But by 93 to 95, somewhere there, I was now then handling the, the subject that we're talking about. And the reason why is because we had a weird thing happen. We actually had a youth minister that was at the camp that had this paper that he produced for the kids he was teaching and all the kids through the camp are going through his class. He had these question and answer things. And, and I didn't know about it until I was driving some kids back to the church from the camp. And they said, yeah, I said, was camp good? Yeah. Well, did you learn anything? Well, it was a little troubling. One of them said, well, what do you mean? Well, we were told that you don't need to be baptized to be a Christian and that we don't need to be sending missionaries. What? I don't believe that. Well, we actually had to fill out paperwork on that. Do you have the paperwork? Yes, they produced paperwork. And they made the kids correct their answers and send them home. And they told them, don't let anybody in your churches tell you anything different. Do you need to be baptized to be a Christian? One of the girls had written yes. They had made a mark it out and said no. And of course, the, there was a discussion of the thief on the cross. Let me, let me help you out. When the thief on the cross comes up, it is very much, it reminds me a whole lot of what some people might try to do with a horrible thing, uh, a, a unique thing that has just recently happened. There was a, a mass shooting in Buffalo that appears to be racist motivated. Have y'all heard about this? White person hating black people. And if, the, if it proves out to be the case, that's a, that's a horrible tragedy and it's horrible that there's still racism. It seems like racism has been ramping up lately. But would you like it if somebody took that case and said, you see that? There you go. All white people are like that. Would you like that? It's not true. And that's what people do with the thief on the cross. And if your head goes to, when you start talking about the necessity of baptism based on what the Bible teaches, if your head jumps to, well, what about the thief on the cross? Would you not? Even if it was a good argument, isn't it an unusual case? Of course, it's not the rule. And I want to give you this again. There was no death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So there was, at that time... He hadn't even died. So there was no salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus at that time. And that's the only way we can be saved today. Would you not agree? You have to be saved through the grace of God, which comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Right? That's a fundamental, rudimentary teaching of Christianity in every church. So the argument that the thief on the cross, what about the thief on the cross? What about the thief on the cross? Is an extremely ignorant argument. He had no salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He had Jesus right there who hadn't done all that yet, who can do what he wants, say what he wants. Same thing with Elijah, Moses, Abraham, or anyone before the resurrection of Jesus. None of them had access to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So anyway, that's what these kids were told. And about the missionaries, what about that part? So the, the question was asked, and one of the questions, are people who never hear about Jesus saved? And one of the kids in the youth group said, no. That's why we have to tell them. They're lost without Jesus. And that child was told to mark out their answer and put yes. Which means there's really no reason for me to preach 
or you to attend Sunday school or to read any Christian books or to send missionaries anywhere because everybody's saved through ignorance. If they don't know, they're saved. And the reality is, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. <clears throat> so there's a lot of false doctrine out there, and I want to help you. So here's what happened at this camp. After the, I learned this, then I contacted people who were on the board of the camp, and they were very bothered by it, and they found out that's exactly what happened. That there was a teaching that you don't need to be baptized. There was a teaching that you don't need to send missionaries. Um, it was very weird. And because I had questioned things, and it turns out the church where this youth minister worked uh, actually terminated him over this whole thing. And that was, I, I think there's a better way. Just teach him, you know. But uh, then I was put in charge of correcting all of that. And... Doing that, I wanted to help people, so I developed a, a card, and it was cheap. I made them first. They were like a white on black, or, or black ink on white cards, and then later I made them better because it seemed like everybody, I just designed these cards to help people. Here, take this home, take them to your churches, use them to teach good doctrine that's biblical, and then I kept getting requests for more and more, so eventually I developed it into something else, and uh, I've got this little card that's got a bunch of stuff on it, and you'll see a, up behind me, I call it the grace card because it's all about the grace of God. And uh, this one's different. It says Central Kitsap Christian Church on it. Um, are you wondering if you can have one of these? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, uh, i tell you what. I'm not going to hand it to the man who made it to church after surgery. <laughs> I'll hand it. No, 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 no. I'll hand you one, though. There you go. I'm going to hand this to Anthony or Yolanda. You know what? He's preoccupied. Can you hand those out, please? Thank you. So if you can hand those out to everybody in the room, I would appreciate it. So what happened at the elders meeting on Friday? See, you thought I went down a rabbit trail and forgot I started with that. What happened at the elders meeting on Friday, I was uh, more amused than I acted like because I was more amused later when I thought about it. But I showed uh, Jim. I'd already showed Dan and Jim hadn't seen it. I showed Jim this card that has the church's name on it that you're getting right now. Um, and then Jim said, that looks familiar. Then he went through his wallet. Am I telling this right, Jim? He went through his wallet and he pulled one that he had gotten years before, obviously at Pleasant Valley Christian Camp, because I've used them there several times and I've had them stacked and sitting there a few times. Anyway, he pulled one out that he'd had in his wallet for years. That's why it looked familiar. And that's where it came from. Now you have them in your hands. Thanks for turning the lights up, Dan. That's very helpful. So what you have in front of you is something I designed for kids uh, to make it easier for them to remember the truth of God's word. And so I've got it spelled out with no scriptures on the front of it. It does have the church's name on it, so you can be proud. This is coming from us. But I want to show you the back of it. If you want to flip it around, you'll see it on the screen behind me as well. Uh, it's a pocket tool. I call it grace cards. And in this pocket tool, we've got some scriptures that can help you. So if you just simply look at it, you'll see those, the first thing, it starts off if you're going to have a conversation with someone, uh, you want to talk to them about, are you open to listening to the Word of God? You want to start with, uh, you might see this Romans road thing always starts with Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which is sin, uh, everybody sins. And then you've got Romans 6, 23, sin equals doom, Jesus equals hope. These, these are just in a nutshell what the scriptures say. Do you believe that you need a savior? John 3, 16 and 17, we're familiar with that passage. Are you broken enough to change your mind about living for Jesus our Lord? Acts 2, 38. And see, that's talking about the whole idea of repentance. And you can read more about it in other places in the New Testament. But then the next one is the confession part. So the 238 is repenting. And the next one is, will you blurt out your confession, saying out loud, uh, wanting Jesus as both Savior and Lord, and really mean it, meaning you'll live for him. Not just that you want him to save you, but you'll also live for him. That's the confession piece, Romans 10, 9, and 10. And now will you begin your new life by being immersed, baptizo is the Greek word, into Christ, Romans 6, 3 to 7, and Acts 22, 16 are passages. And at the end of it, I have, 
You're going to make disciples, which means blossom, grow, uh, Matthew 28, 16 and following. All of that is there. Now, the reason why I have that there and it's in your hands is not, this is what these, these cards are not for. These cards are not for, here, take this, learn it, and do it. That's not for that. This is for you to take this and dwell on it on a lunch break at work or as you are exercising and you put it right in front of you or whatever it is you can do to learn from this to commit these things to memory. That's why it's abbreviated and it's short. Commit it to memory. That's what these cards are to help you to do. And if you can't commit it to memory, you can put it in your wallet or your purse or whatever and pull it out as you need it. But I can tell you, it takes away from it if you're talking to someone about what you truly believe in with everything within you you believe in the lordship of jesus is what you need to be saved if you really believe that you shouldn't have to pull something out to help you remind you of what you believe you should know it if it's that important to you you know this so these are designed to help you commit it to memory that's what it's for you might know some people who might like these cards. You might want to get it to them and say, this can help you. And when you try to lead someone to Christ, use this to memorize things. If that's you, there, there's cards in the lobby at basically every place you think you would want to look for them. On this little table over there by the Daily Breads, over here at the little Welcome Center, and then right when you walk in the door, there's stacks of them there. And if we run out, we have plenty. So you can just take them, use them, but it's for committing to memory. So now I want to show you another thing up on this screen behind me. This is a computer. I designed this on a computer so that it's easier for you to read. I've got horrible handwriting. If I were to do it like I did before, uh, I would have all this written out and it's in the men's, in their notebook as well, where it's written out, not typed out like this. But basically this is the same thing as that triangle. I like this better because it kind of shows steps. And I don't have the scriptures up here. We're going to look at those in just a minute rather quickly. But basically, this was taught to me by a guy uh, that I respect very much. I don't even know what he's doing these days, but he was a preacher who he committed so much scripture to memory. And he helped me in understanding how he had led several people to Christ by just drawing on a napkin at the dinner table. And I find that to be quite effective. Rather than pull out this card and talk about what's on it, if you're talking to someone at the dinner table, at lunch, or wherever you are somewhere, and you just pull an envelope over and write on the back of it, let me show you something. And draw this out. Draw these steps. Basically, you want to talk about all of the elements here. I always draw the step for believe to be the biggest step, because that's the biggest one. If you believe, that's the biggest step to take. The rest of them are uh, pretty easy after that. I have a treadmill. I draw on mine at the top because after you're baptized, life gets hard. And once you become a Christian, it does not get easier. It comes at you hard and fast. You become a bigger target of the devil, and you cannot stand still. You must keep your stride and move forward in your faith. That's the idea of this. Now, I always draw grace. That's what that big circle is. It's all about the grace of God, but your faith is the access to the grace. Now we'll go back to that chart that's familiar to you, and we'll look at some of those details. Here you go. You have life before Christ, Proverbs 4.19. Look it up. Then you're presented with the gospel. Somebody shares with you something about the truth of Jesus being the only way. Matthew 28, 18, we're told we're supposed to go make disciples. So somebody shared with you something at some point in time, even if it was on the radio or TV. Somebody shared something. Maybe it was grandma. Believe, John 3, 16, you know, that's the, that's the, uh, the passage that means go win the football game. Every game you see John 3, 16, you know, somebody's holding it up. I used to think it was so absurd because like who in their right mind ever is converted from seeing just a sign that says John 3.16. That's not effective. Until Stephanie and I were having lunch with uh, the co-author of the book, Soul Surfer, the preacher uh, who, was in the, who was also a surfer, uh, who was in the church where the, the girl who had her arm bitten off by a shark and then went on to 
still compete and do quite well. Anyway, he was, uh, we're having, he's written some books, some very good ones, Refined by Fire, very good book for men and boys. Uh, but anyway, uh, Rick Bunchu is his name. He's sitting there and he had his comrade, a co-minister in his church over there in Hawaii, sitting there with us. And, and he said the same thing. Yeah, John 3, 16, you ever see those signs? It's so absurd. Nobody's ever going to convert from that. That's, a, that's just a waste. Until his friend told him how he converted. What, what led you to Christ? And he said, it was that John three sixteen sign. It works for some people. John three sixteen. we know the passage. And then the next step is repent. Acts 2.38. After they became believers, and they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That's verse 37. Peter said to them, repent. Change your minds. Well, why do you need to change your mind? You already believe. You've got to make a decision. Will you live for him? Because James tells us the demons believe. But they, you know, they don't live for him. You have to illustrate your faith, James continues to say. So you've got to repent, change your mind, decide that you will live for him for the rest of your life. That's a big decision. Confess. What do you confess? Well, you simply articulate that, you're, that you want him as Savior and you're going to live for him. We have cheapened this so much that it's gotten to the point where people just make it so easy that all you've got to do is hold your hand up and now you're saved. Where's the commitment to live for Jesus? Where's the lordship of Christ in that? That is a very fundamental, rudimentary teaching, much like you can't be saved without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You can't be saved if, without the lordship of Jesus. That's a, that's a problem when people try to say something other than that. So I want to give you a passage. Jesus himself said some very harsh things in Matthew chapter 10. Let's read it together. You don't have to read it out loud. I'll read it. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus did not keep it a secret. He has to be number one in your life. Above everything. He has to be the number one priority. He has to be Lord. That's what it means. For Him to be Lord, you to serve Him as Lord. He is number one. You love Him. Here's what we don't get. So we, get the, we have this in our head that my family, my family is number one, then God, and then work, and whatever. Excuse me. But if you have your family less than Jesus, then you're really not prioritizing your family. You prioritize Jesus and you're, you're elevating the value of your family because you're going to do everything you can to try to make sure they all go with you to heaven. And that is a love that surpasses this idea that my family has to be first. Make Jesus first. And then your family will feel the love is greater for them. Some of them might reject you because you've got such a priority. Are you got John some sort of a cult? This Jesus thing? Like you were never that dedicated before? Well, see, that's the difference. Jesus is my Lord. He's my priority. So back to that card you see on the back of the card. That's why I have that part about are you broken enough to change your mind about living for Jesus as Lord? It's not just, okay, so you need to repent. That means you just need to accept Him. Well, that's... Where's that in the Bible? Just, just, just accept Him and it's all over. It's good now. You're saved. No. You have to live for Him. That's what Jesus said. He has to be number one. Take up your cross and follow Him or you are not worthy of Him. It's not easy. It's tough. 
and we have to acknowledge our responsibility. So let's go back to the triangle again just so we can kind of have a visual. I'm trying to give you as many tools as I can. So then you have, after you confess that you want Him as Savior and Lord, don't leave out the Lord part. You don't get the Savior part without the Lord part. Then you commit to baptism. Be baptized. Acts 2.38 says that too. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Well, why'd you throw confession in the middle of it? Well, it only makes sense. If you're going to confess that you want Jesus as Savior and Lord, meaning you're going to live for Him for the rest of your life, you wouldn't wait till... You would not say, I'm going to do that before you repent... Would you? No, you have, you're making that decision. That, you, you, you're making that decision. Okay, so then would you not articulate that? Yes. You wouldn't wait till after you're baptized to say, I made this decision. You do it before. And there's a reason. God is so wise. There's, he, there's a reason why you're supposed to say it. Why do you have to say it? Why do you have to say out loud, yes, I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior? That seems like it's just ritualistic or something. Far from it. You can't imagine the number of people that I talk to, adults, my age and older, sometimes younger, that say th something like this. I don't, I don't know if I knew what I was doing when I was baptized. But if there were witnesses that heard you say, I, will, I want to make him Lord, then you knew what you were doing. And even better, with kids, I, I do this thing, with, if, I'm, if I've got to sit down at a table, it's inevitable in this church, it's going to happen. Pastor, can you come talk to us? One of our children is talking about baptism, and we're not so sure they're ready. Sure. So we talk about it. I draw on a napkin or an envelope or a piece of paper, whatever. This is how it works. Where are you in this process? And, and if you get to the point where you're talking to this child and you're saying, uh, you know, so that means when you're, you know, I've I said this before, your parents say clean your room, your best answer is, it's done. That's the best answer. Because you know that loving Jesus means you've got to sh love your parents. That pleases the Lord. And, and you know, um, you, that means you've got to love Jesus enough to not fight so much with your brother or sister. And if they go, well, I'm not doing that. Well, they're not ready to make Jesus Lord. They've got other priorities going on. We know this. But if they are convincing at the table and you're talking to them, uh, they're, very they're very convincing. It seems like they really know. I would not want to hold a child back. I've also talked to adults who resent their parents holding them back when they legitimately wanted to make Jesus Lord and their parents said, you're not ready. Wow. So what I like to do is I like to have the child after this write a letter to their parents explaining what they know about this decision. How do you know you're ready? If you read such a letter, it'll usually choke you up. But you take that letter, and the parents then talk to their child about what they wrote, and then if they're ready, because see, in the Bible, every time there's any mention of a child being baptized, it always involved families, whole households. So you've got to involve the parents. They know their child better than anybody else. So you involve the parents. Very different than what the public schools think, isn't it? Anyway, so once you have this letter, the preacher wants the letter. The preacher puts it in a file so that 20, 30, 40 years from now, when they're saying, I don't know if I knew what I was doing. Let me show you something. You wrote this. Confess. Powerful. God knows what he's doing. That's why it's part of it. So in the plan, confessing would naturally fit before baptizing. And guess what? Historically speaking, that's exactly the way it went down in the New Testament and in the first century church. People's confessions were made and then there was baptism. Now the passages for baptism, you can, um, there, I've got them up there. You've got the Romans 6, 3 to 7. It says that those of us that were that were, um, those of us that were baptized were buried with him in baptism and we rose anew to begin our new life with him. That's what it says. Even that movie, where, oh brother, where art thou? Remember that? Even that movie, it definitely had a funny scene in it if you'll remember where the, there's people being baptized out in the water and they're all getting dunked in the water 
and you've got this criminal, the, one of the funniest of the, of the criminals. He runs down there and he goes to be baptized. They baptize him and I've, I've been saved! Then they continue to go rob people. Uh, he didn't act saved, but at least historically speaking, baptism before modern times has always been seen as something you do to be saved. That's, that's what he did. People don't like it. People don't like to hear it because they, they like to say, well, you're saying you have to do something. They're saying you have to do something to be saved. Did you know that Jesus said, and we're going to look at this closer as we go through the Gospel of John, but at one point in time, Jesus was asked, what must we do to do the works God requires? And do you know what he said? What work did he say? He said, believe. Now, if Jesus calls believing a work, then believing is a work, right? Does that settle that argument? Believing is a work. It's something we have to do. We initiate. We choose to believe or not to believe. Believing is a work. Jesus said believing is a work. Okay. If Jesus says believing is a work and people want to argue, you can't do any works to save yourself, then you're saying that I, I, believing, I don't need to be believing in Jesus to be saved. Well, that throws a little monkey wrench into that theory, doesn't it? Who's going to say you don't have to believe? Well, then if you say you have to believe, you're saying you have to do a work. So why do you want to throw out baptism? What's the argument? Because you, you, you want to call it a work? I don't care if you call it a work. Jesus is the one in Matthew chapter 4 that said, let it be so now for everyone to fulfill this, to fulfill righteousness, to do this, to fulfill righteousness. Now, there's only one person that has ever walked this planet that didn't need to be baptized in the New Testament times and thereafter, and that's Jesus. And he still did it. And when he did it, his father said, that's my son. I am well pleased. And the people that want to argue against the necessity for baptism are necessarily arguing against this book and against Jesus. I don't want to be a part of that. And I know there, this, will, this will cause problems with some of the people who come in these doors. Sometimes people will come in these doors and they already have this belief and you got to preach what I want you to preach, preacher. And so, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to deviate from this book. This is what we need to know. And this is what we need to live. So, if you want to draw it out, I recommend once you memorize this, use this card to your advantage. Draw it out. It looks like these steps. I highly recommend. Use this chart you'll see pop up behind me. I, drew it, I showed you before. Draw that out. That will help you. I was talking to uh, Gladys Fellows, a friend of ours. Stephanie knows her. She's 93, she'll be 94 in October. And uh, we were talking about the church uh, where I served for about 20 years. She, um, she said, uh, you know, I used to keep records. She, used to, she was a record keeper. She counted the people in the building. And I remember when we went from 40 to over 400. Yes, I remember that. Uh, I, she, she said, you baptized so many people. I said, Gladys, I didn't keep count. I, I know it was over 100. She goes, well, it was way more than that. I kept count. I said, okay, okay. If it was, and I think it, she's probably right, it was done by this. this. That's the way every time that I talk to somebody about Christ, uh, leading them to Christ, I always drew it on a napkin or an envelope. And sometimes even if there's a piece of paper nearby, I still didn't want the spontaneity of the back of an envelope or a napkin it's been surprising to me after many years of leading people to christ how people will pull out of their wallet or out of their purse or out of the cabinet that little folded up napkin that leads people to scripture and leads people to christ you've got the tools so remember the idea today is an emphasis on biblical soteriology, getting God's salvation plan right. Jesus as more than a Savior. Let's change it. Watch this slide up behind me. Watch this can change. Jesus is more than a Savior. He must be Lord if He's going to be your Savior. If you need to make a decision today, the opportunity is now. We're going to have a song of decision. The people that come on the stage and lead us in a song of decision are going to do that now.
If you are not one who has made a decision to follow Christ, this is your opportunity. If you're one who hasn't been actively and effectively leading others to Christ, I hope you will begin that process. If you need help, let me know. Get with one of the elders or someone here who's good at it, and let's do this together. And maybe, just maybe, we'll say the right thing to this community, that Jesus is more than a Savior.